Hey listeners, we'd like to give a major content warning for this episode in which we discuss drug use, rape, genocide, and other instances of extreme violence. Please feel free to skip this episode and check out a different one or wait until our next episode is released in a fortnight. Hello, and welcome to JK It's Magic, a bi-weekly podcast in which two bookish besties read YA fantasy through a critical lens. Why? Because critique is our fangirl love language, and because talking about books is pretty magical. I'm Jesse, And I'm Kelly. In episode 15, we're discussing R.F. Kuang's novel, The Poppy War. This novel isn't even remotely close to young adult, but I've been wanting to read it ever since seeing Kuang slay at a 2018 Denver Comic Con panel, and Jesse obliged me. So here we are. The Poppy War tells the story of Rin, a small yet mighty war orphan who passes an infa- infamously difficult test to earn a spot at the prestigious Sinagardian Academy, where she learns to be a soldier and so much more. She becomes a shaman, one of the few people who can channel the power of the gods. When the Federation of M- Mugen, is that how we pronounce that? It's how we pronounce it now, invades Nikon, Rin teams up with other shamans, witnesses unimaginable horrors, and even commits some herself. What did you think? Um, This book turned out to be so different than what I expected it to be. What did you expect? I think I was expecting less gray areas. Like I thought we would see Ren become a warrior. And I, for some reason, thought we'd spend most of the time at the Academy as opposed to probably two thirds of the book at war. Um, And I didn't realize it was going to be possibly a series. So I thought, we would have it all like nice and wrapped up at the end. Um, So this might be one of the first times I've read adult fantasy and I really enjoyed how Kwong created this beautiful and intricate world and gave us some extremely complicated characters, even though it made me feel a little confused at the end (laughs) (laughs) about how I feel. What about you? The characters were definitely one of the highlights of the book for me, along with the complex shamanic magical system. I thought that was so rad how Kuang paid so much attention to detail about constructing the Pantheon and how the drugs interact with the magic. And we'll talk about all of that. But I I love that aspect of the book. The Poppy War challenged me in a lot of ways, particularly with the representations of violence and why we do it, how we do it. But I think that's a really good thing. And I enjoy reading books that make me think and reevaluate. So The Poppy War is definitely one of those. Highly recommend. Time to talk about world building in Through the Wardrobe. What I thought was kind of interesting is a lot of this world building doesn't rely necessarily on descriptions of the current surroundings. So it it differs a lot from books like Girls with Paper and Fire, for example, that was very much about like the sensory details of what's happening in the present moment. And what instead the Poppy War is a lot more about relies on history and legend for the world building. And then the reader kind of populates it from there. So we hear about the unification of Nikon under the Red Emperor, relations between the Spearly with the Spearleys, the Federation of Mugen, the legend of the Trifecta, which is the warrior, the gatekeeper, and the Vipress, Tirza, and the tragic history of Spear. And that's honestly what a lot of the world building hinges upon. Yeah, and we don't really get to see anywhere really out of Nikira. We stay... I'm, we. Nikon? Nikon, yeah. <laughs> Nikira is the name of the people. Nikara. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't really leave that kind of like when we did children of blood and red children of blood and bone. Um, we don't really leave our like specific area where our characters are. We get to see different parts of Nikon, but like we don't see the Longbow Island or the hinterlands, the hinterlands in Hesperia. Like we don't get to visit those places, even though they are mentioned quite frequently. Did you pay attention to or notice the gorgeous descriptions of the martial arts and chi key? I think it's key key. That's what I thought. Fuck. I'm so white. Yeah. (laughs) I guess we should have said up front. There are a lot of words we do not know how to pronounce in this book. So we are trying our best. And (laughs) apologize if we fuck it up. So hold us accountable. (laughs) Um, I really enjoyed this. These descriptions. I did martial arts as a kid. Not the kind that they're doing here. I studied Japanese martial arts. So very different. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But I really enjoyed it a lot. I thought it was really cool. Um, and I think Huang did a really good job of making sure that, uh, descriptions were fleshed out enough that you could like really see what was going on. And even if you weren't familiar with martial arts, you would understand what was happening. I think so for sure. Yeah. I did martial arts when I was a kid too. I got my black belt in Taekwondo and that's Korean. So it's neither, you know, Japanese nor Chinese, which are the two traditions that are most in play here. But I particularly liked the descriptions of how, of physics and how that works in hand-to-hand combat. Here's a quote from page 49 to 50. Martial arts is about action and reaction, angles and trigonometry, the right amount of force applied at the proper vector. Your muscles contract and exert force, and that force is dispelled through to the target. If you build muscle mass, you can exert greater force. If you practice good technique, you can force your force disperses with greater concentration and higher effectiveness. Martial arts is no more complicated than pure physics. I'm not that interested in math or physics, but reading this makes me, I could be interested if it were explained to me in these terms. I took college of physics. I wouldn't say it's not hard. <laughs> I think physics is pretty difficult mm-hmm. for me, but I really like this. And one of the things I really liked about um, the martial arts in this book, especially when we're with um, Jiang, is that uh, a lot of it had to do with like meditation and like clearing your mind, even though in the end, Rin really pushes back on that and decides like she's not going to do it his way. Um, I really like that, like those aspects of the martial arts as well, that like your mind was also kind of a weapon. And that they went into the development of different styles of martial arts, how these families had like prior, like their own traditions I guess that had been passed on from master to pupil throughout generations I just think that it's very cool to recuperate that legacy I guess right the spirit world was just like mind blow emoji (laughs) it was I thought that was so cool and how she was able to or the author was able to say that it's profoundly different because but at the same time, Rin, when she's in the spirit world, perceives it as if she is in physical space. But they explain it in the exposition, saying that it's because your mind has to make sense of it. Right. Your mind has to do something to make sense of where you are. So it gives you the appearance of physical surroundings. Right. I thought it was really interesting. And it, it reminded me, I think, maybe obviously or maybe just because I've 
read a lot of books, but it reminded me a lot of like Greek mythology, how all the gods are like living in one place. And it's like, I guess in Greek mythology, it's like on Olympus, but I thought that it reminded me of that a lot. And I don't know that much about Chinese culture, but I wonder if they also have a pantheon of gods similar to Greek mythology. I think there's a lot of different religious traditions Mm -hmm. from there. And I'm, you know, not familiar with that many of them. I'll look it up and put it in the show notes. Awesome. Thanks. (laughs) I'll, I'll read the show notes and then learn. (laughs) There was a lot of talk about patriotism within the book, which mm, I'm not a fan of patriotism. I'm not a patriotic person. Obvi. (laughs) Um, But there was some talk about what is owed of our leaders. So on page 319, Kara says, if you hold the fate of the country in your hands, if you have accepted your obligation to your people, then your life ceases to be your own. And I thought it was a um, unique way to look at how once you become a person who's in power, a person who's in charge of taking care of or mm, keeping thing people in line, kind of, that what everything you do should be what's best for the greater good instead of just for yourself. Um, And I liked that depiction of what a leader is supposed to be, even though we see no, I mean, I guess Tirza, she seemed to have done that. But with the Empress, we see that she has some ulterior motives. That's what I was going to say is that it's interesting that we hear this from Kara and at the same time, don't see leaders acting this way at all throughout the novel maybe maybe a little bit Zhang the gatekeeper he keeps trying to like reinforce to Ren that she shouldn't be taking on the power of the gods because it'll be dangerous because it will upset the balance in the world so maybe he's the most like balanced of the leaders that we actually see but he also like goes and hides and is like all right figure it out (laughs) so I don't know we don't have any this book one of, I think it's defining characteristics is the gray area, like you mentioned right. in the initial reactions that we don't, it puts this reader, it makes them have complicated feelings and conflicted feelings about pretty much every situation and every character. Which makes sense because in the real world, our leaders are not always doing the right things. Sometimes they're real shitty and never do the right things. like now yeah but even the ones who we think of as good leaders have done terrible awful things this world also has arranged marriage i was a little child marriage yeah child marriage because rin is 16 when the book starts i think so so i guess in some places in the world that's not considered that's an adult um but i kind of i think forget sometimes that other places still do arranged marriage and i think when the person who's getting married if neither of them want to take part in that it's like in a forced arranged marriage maybe maybe there are instances when arranged marriage is okay i don't know i have complicated feelings about it when they're consensual right but ren obviously was not consenting to that and is like trying to make a deal with her aunt to get out of having to marry some old dude that she doesn't want to be with and in the in those conversations with auntie fong i think so Mm -hmm. um i think that's her name it it sounded like the 
her guardian, right? Rin's mm-hmm. guardian had perhaps was in that situation herself. Yes. Maybe because then she was just, she was basically telling Rin how to get your husband addicted to opium so that you don't, so that he becomes like completely dependent on you and eventually like wastes away and then you get all of his money and property. Yeah. Which I also had complicated feelings about because obviously you don't want to marry that person. So you shouldn't have to. But at the same time, you're drugging him, subduing another person against their will. It was very complicated. This is what we mean by there's no ethical like high ground to stand on. Because I'm if it were me and I was in a non-consensual marriage, I probably would also be like, yeah, I'll drug that dude like or woman or whoever. Like, I don't care. Like, I don't want anything to do with them. I didn't want this. But at the same time, you're kind of taking that, like, their free will away. It's kind of like, what do you do when there's no good choice? Right, exactly. And the end survival's at stake. Right, right. And I guess in the end, Auntie Fang gets her son, and she seems kind of happy about that. But I think mostly so that her husband doesn't get rid of her. It was it was very complicated. I have no idea. It sounded like her husband was just addicted to opium. Oh, yeah. Yes. I think so for sure. Something that we kind of like touched on already is the elaborate religious system, um, which is what a lot of the magic hinges on. I thought it was great to see all the different gods who had their own backstories and relationship with certain characters because certain characters had more of an affinity with um, specific gods. Like Rin was with the Phoenix and Sunni was with um, a monkey God. Um, and I thought that was really interesting But something that the book says, it's kind of a long quote. It's page 186 to 187. And Rin is doing a report for Xiang about different religions. Um, In a week, she had produced what she thought was a brilliant report on the difference between Nakira and Hesperian religious traditions. The Hesperians had only one church. They believed in one divine entity, a holy maker, separate from and above all moral affairs, wrought in the image of man. Rin argues that this god, this maker, was a means by which Hesperia's government maintained order. The priests of the order and the holy maker held no political office, but exerted more cultural control than the Hesperian government did. Since Hesperia was a large country without warlords and had absolute power over each of its states, rule of law had to be enforced by propagation of the myth and of moral codes. The empire, in contrast, was a country of what Rin labeled superstitious atheists. Gods in Nikon were the heroes of myth, tokens of culture, icons to be acknowledged during important life events like weddings, births, or deaths. They were personifications of emotions that, Nikira themse- that the Nikira themselves felt. And so, religious, religion is merely a social construct in both the East and the West, Rin concluded. The, different li- the difference lies in their utility. And I really thought this was interesting as a way to think of, in our own world religions that have one god are often propagated by the government we see this in our own government where they try and make laws based on moral codes from religion specifically christianity in the united states um and we often think of um people not us but people in our country often think of people who celebrate more than one god as superstitious like people who believe in witchcraft are seen as superstitious um or practicing voodoo for example yeah exactly um but i really liked ren's description of religion i'm not sure i 100 percent agree with her because i do think 
obviously there are people who believe in more than one God who are not just superstitious atheists, as she put it. Um, But I really liked her description of how a government can use people's beliefs to like make them do certain things and write their laws and force things on them. I would say the one exception, I don't know if exception is the thing. I guess one, one exception I can think of to what you're saying about the monotheism being um, connected to government specifically would be like Hindu nationalism Mm -hmm. um, in India but as as far as I don't I don't know if she was necessarily making this distinction between like monotheism and why it's used. Mm-hmm. I think it was more like the government doesn't have like warlords. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not like a feudal system essentially, right. and so they keep people docile because of this moral code. And mm-hmm. so Hesperians use religion in order to, to dictate how they're going to behave versus religion in Nikon has this other happens to be polytheistic and also happens to be a little bit more ceremonial. Right. I guess it seems like it. I really liked her treatment of religion and it was very complex mm-hmm. in the world um, that Kwong built in this novel. I guess we do see Rin diverge from this sentiment a little bit because it, by the end she is serving the Phoenix God. So slash I- he's serving her. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) I'm not really sure who's in charge in that relationship. (laughs) I think we see that even within the polytheism that people are more focused on one God than on each person being having like strong feelings towards all of them. Wands out. Let's discuss all things magic. So as you mentioned a few minutes ago, magic in the world of the Poppy War originates from the pantheon of 64 gods in Nikon. And humans themselves are not magic beings, but rather they're the people who can use magic are shamans. So they can act as conduits or channels for the um, gods and their powers. It seems that people have an affinity for specific gods, which is kind of interesting. And Zhang insists that understanding the divine as being both inside and outside of the self is the central tenet of being a shaman. And that's on page 194. I really loved how Kuang just went for it with the drugs and the, in the connection to magic and the gods and how drugs are a way to access the magic. And there's just something about overriding the conscious mind to tap into the rest of our brains and unconscious. I don't know. Have you heard the thing somewhere that we only use X percent of our minds as humans? Yes. I think uh, I actually just saw something about it yesterday and a doctor, (laughs) Dr. Ken Jeong, (laughs) who is from the hangover. (laughs) He's a licensed doctor. Um, He said something about like 10 to 15%. Like we use 10 to 15% of our brain. It's incredible. Yeah. I'm going to look that up. It sounds wrong. Well, <laughs> he's a doctor. <laughs> and always trust people with names after, <laughs> letters after their names or before them. People all over the world have been using entheogenic plants. Did you know what that's that what they were called? I did, I not. did not. Entheogenic plants to commune with their respective deities for millennia. Pre-Columbian cultures of Mesoamerica did this. They're, um, and everywhere, all over independent of one another before their before the Colombian exchange before colonization and exploration this was happening in different respective corners throughout the world 
at the beginning of the book um ran and i think is it's in the exposition um are the so the narrators mentioning a war on drugs that the empress has like instituted and i don't know if that wording was intentional or if there's no other way to <laughs> to say that but part of me wonders if some of that stems from the the empress who who i think is also the the vipress yes and is a shaman but maybe doesn't want anyone else practicing magic so i wonder if some of her like war on drugs is a way to um like control or keep shamans from being able to access certain knowledge i don't know i think that maybe question mark because it it seems like the the way to keep people from being shamans is to keep them from the knowledge, not necessarily from the drugs. Right. And there's like the different kinds of drugs mm-hmm. that Enki then describes. He's in the CK. He describes it to Rin, the like nuggets, the, the like opium nuggets that the people smoke, which is what gets them really addicted and what's been distributed throughout the countries versus the like heroin. That's just even worse. Right. And the poppy seeds, which is what the shamans tend to use. Right. But even when, Alton and um, Rin are given heroin at the research lab. They both end up at the Pantheon. So I wonder if some of the drugs would take someone who isn't a shaman and take them to the Pantheon anyways. I don't know. I feel like you have to know that it exists and know how to access it. That war on drugs really got to me. (laughs) Oh, I think that that was absolutely intentional. Yeah. Yeah. Shamans are feared in Nikon, but they're also exploited by the empire for political gain. So the existence of shamans isn't common knowledge, like with normal, like regular people in the empire. But at the same time, there's an elite team of shaman assassins. But none of them are actually from Nikon. They're all from different places. The, the doctor Shinto. Enki. No, the one at the research lab. Oh, he's from the Federation. Oh, Okay, then I was confused. Oh, so no one in the Federation has shaman. No, they never had any, which is why they were so obsessed with them, hmm. with the Spearleys and with experimenting on them. I wonder what it is that gives someone shaman powers. Like, what is it about their cultures? Or hmm, That's interesting. I don't know. That wasn't really clear. Mm-mm. Maybe in the next book. If there's next book, maybe. One thing I thought that Kwong did really well with this magical system was drawing that connection and showing the fine line between magic and madness and how the consequence of being a conduit for the God's power is sharing your mind with the God and losing yourself. So the line between divine and human gets blurred and eventually you kind of just become this vessel, which is why they have to go get interred in the mountain prison because they can't die. They just stay there in suspended animation for an eternity. Which sounds terrible. I don't know what else you're supposed to do with those people, but it's like, I mean, it's like institutionalizing someone. Yep. Indefinitely. Like li- for a literal eternity because they yeah. can't die because they're gods. There were there are people who were in there before n- the history that we even learned of, of Nikon. So mm-hmm. thousands of years. And on the other side of the coin, there's enlightenment. So I guess that's what you get. But the price you pay is mad is like madness and eternal imprisonment after like a few decades. And I I love this explanation that Rin gave like upon reuniting with Zhang after her that first trip. And she like trips in the wilderness for two weeks. 
And she says, I understand the truth of things. I know what it means to exist. It's page 213. I was just like, it's so transcendental. (laughs) (laughs) I love all this shit. I just imagine you like going into the woods and like smoking something and just coming back and be like, I get it. I got it. (laughs) I know what it means to exist. (laughs) And that's like the core, I guess, of being able to commune with the gods is, is understanding what what Rin, how Rin seems to describe it is that the she understands these forces of creation and destruction and it's this whole give and take balance light and dark love and hate that sort of thing and this give and take between those and reality she describes that as a dream and that when she went to the spirit world it was like waking up right that's just so cool I wonder if there are any shaman who have been able to like you know balance that magic and madness because it seems like we're told that eventually all shaman have to be entombed so i wonder if there's a way to like not let the gods in but still practice your shamanism i feel like jong would be an example of that because he interred himself versus when they talk about the ck commander always goes mad right and loses themselves and they have to get dragged to the mountain and mm-hmm. interred by their lieutenant or whatever. Um, I think Zhang's the only one who has succeeded in not doing that. And we know he's the gatekeeper. But right. I don't know what sets him apart. Yeah, I don't either. But And he must be really old. Well, really old. Right? Yes. Like, that's like 500 years. Huh. So he's been balancing that for a while. But I guess we don't know if it's because the gods gave him some special power i get I, maybe i have the timeline messed up because i don't know about the empress then how old she's supposed to be i think and I where's the, the warrior same... oh yeah i don't know mm. Mm. book two book two <laughs> if there is a book two <laughs> kwang just thought about this so much in so much detail because the shamans who come from different places have different relationships with the gods, like different ways of relating to them. And we see this more, most free, most clearly with um, Chang'an, who is from the hinterlands. And he calls the Nakara's insistence on the strict separation between material and spiritual primitive on page 395. And Chang'an travels to the gods and spends time in the spirit, more, spends time in the spirit world rather than like summoning them like a dog is how he describes it. And I just thought that was really cool how these different, geographically within the same general empire have almost opposite ways of dealing with the gods the nakan the nakara are like come to me i summon you versus the people in the hinterlands i guess maybe have this more reverential treatment and are like no i have to go to them right and finally along those same lines Chang'an and Rin go to the divinatory which is a part of the spirit realm that Chang'an calls a perspective instead of a place which kind of gets to my point that I made a few minutes ago about how when they're in the spiritual spirit worlds their minds just have to what you see there isn't actually there it's just what your mind does to cope I thought that was so cool yeah I really like that you want to talk about the hexagrams Oh, I just thought they were cool, too. I just sound like I'm fangirling her. <laughs> you are a little bit. I think it's okay. Okay. Well, it was it. The magic system was really impressive. I thought the hexagrams, uh, those are around page 397. They 
tell how things are now. And that kind of reminded me of the way that I use tarot and, you know, the people I've learned from how they use tarot. It's rather, it's less of a divination practice about the future and more like, what am I being invited to pay attention to about the present moment? Right. Yeah. Wands away. Now we're going to talk about conflict, villains, and good versus evil in a segment called Get Me Kylo Ren. I feel like this entire episode is a Get Me Kylo Ren segment. (laughs) (laughs) But much more villainous than Kylo Ren. Oh, way worse than Kylo Ren. You can still see the, the kernel of goodness in Kylo Ren. Yes. I don't know. He's kind of also a douche. Well, yeah. This, the Poppy War is essentially a story about war and revenge and anger and what happens when those run amok. And there's so much insistence put on laying out in a lot of detail these techniques and technologies and strategies of domination. So getting communities addicted to drugs, mass rape, mass murder, chemical weapons, experimentation, dehumanization of the enemy revising or omitting aspects of history. An example of this is when Rin doesn't know the truth of what Nikon did to the Spearleys. They, Nikon got them addicted to opium, just how the Federation also pumped opium into the Empire. Yeah, it was a lot. Um, the novel did not shy away from violence in any way, shape, or form. Mm-mm. I was honestly shocked at some of the descriptions we got, but I think they were used well to show the consequences of war um, and to show what such evil and cruelty looks like to people who have never and will likely never experience that. Hopefully in our lifetime, we never experience that, but those things are happening in other parts of the world. Um, so I in think, our country to people. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so it's important that to have like these perspectives of what's actually going on instead of, I think a lot of times, especially in our country, we try and, put things like this in the past like what happened with the nazis and the jews instead of realizing that these things are still happening like these kinds of people who are cruel and evil still exist even today yeah it reminds me of um speaking of the holocaust hannah arendt's concept of the banality of evil and just which she wrote in when she was in israel watching eichmann adolf eichmann's trials in jerusalem he was the so-called architect of the final solution and the banality of evil is just that like it's everywhere it's not even new or different anymore um i i did think that this book i totally agree with what you said and about how it's a i guess i would say the violence was extreme and extremely um detailed uh i don't even know like there isn't a way to describe it. You just have to read it. Right. And, but it was at the same time struck me as responsible. It didn't mm-hmm. seem like gratuitous or exploitative. I agree. I didn't at all. I, I don't know that I could read something this violent again. Um, but I do think she handled it well and it didn't feel, yeah, exploitative in any way. Uh, the Nanjing massacre is, struck seemed to me as the likely source text like inspiration for the for what happens in Golan Nis which starts in chapter 21 which was the massacre essentially of the federation massacres this city in the empire and the Nanjing massacre was um when the Japanese and Japanese troops invaded China during the second Sino-Japanese war 
and they occupied the city of Nanjing for six weeks, only six weeks, and an estimated 20,000 people were raped, so mostly women and children, and then killed a lot of them, vast majority of them. And as, like researchers can't quite agree on the number of um, deaths, but like a, a middle ballpark figure is between 150 and 200,000 people were murdered during those six weeks. And I couldn't stop reading this Wikipedia article. Like I just had to keep going. And despite it, and it, despite the fact that it was only an overview with only some details, it was just fucking horrific. And Kuang doesn't hold back when describing the carnage. And honestly, I think this is a case where fiction isn't that far removed from reality. Like, you read what happens in the book, and then you read the, like, testimonies and actual historical documents, and you're like, no, these are very similar to one another. It was shocking and horrifying. I, I think it's important to remember that that was in 1937 and 1938, so just a few years before the start of World War II, and it was actually this period, the Sino-Japanese War, was smack dab in the middle of what becomes the Chinese Revolution, so what takes china to a communist state in the late 40s early 50s this happens right in the that sort of like bisected by this armed conflict and i didn't know about any of it until i started researching it for this episode yeah i've never heard of any of this and i mean it's kind of a detriment to like uh, our education system that we don't really learn about what has happened in other countries unless you specifically take classes on those countries histories and even then those are really only accessible to you in college if you go to college yeah because i had no idea rin is a villain do you agree yes <laughs> i a lot agree <laughs> this is one of the points that kuang made when she was killing it on the comic-con panel i saw her on last summer and she's like, I don't, there was some audience question about like how you write your heroes or your heroines to this panel of women authors. And she just, the microphone gets passed to her and she's like, I don't write heroes, I write villains. Wow. Well, she did. Owning it. Well, and it's not very often we get, I think we've talked about before about unlikable female characters. And while I like Rin, they're like, I wouldn't be friends with her. Like I wouldn't hang out with her. One, she's super violent and I think above and beyond my my threshold <laughs> which is high <laughs> um but she's an unlikable female character i would say and we don't get that very often YA fantasy and i know this isn't ya but it's it is nice to read an unlikable female character because we get so many unlikable male characters as if it's just like to be expected absolutely and i also appreciated that it wasn't it wasn't even trying to go for the anti-hero narrative no it was just no straight up villain yeah. But in in that way, we, we saw this villain's backstory. We saw, like, we follow them through the present, you know, of what they're experiencing, what Rin's experiencing. And in that way, you it, it like, fleshing out a villain's story is just as interesting. I would maybe argue even more interesting and more complicated and more, like, I guess, a more challenging experience as a reader than a hero's journey. Right, because I feel connected to Rin and I'm invested in her, like in her journey, even though I, I feel like her journey is going to include her doing some terrible, awful things that I'm not going to like. <laughs> right. So then what does that say about us as the reader about right. the capacity to have a relationship or to feel very deeply about people that do bad shit? 
I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that I want to know. <laughs> I know. But that's what I'm saying makes it so yeah. interesting as like a reading experience. Yeah, you're right. Rin is obsessed with power from the very beginning. And so I kind of I kind of expected it to go this way. Also because I saw Kwong at the <laughs> at Comic-Con. She's like, I write villains. I was like, okay, I feel like I know where this is going. Right. But Rin craves power and the more she gets, the more she wants. So the more like she but power in all sorts of different ways, knowledge martial arts skills um like when she finally gets the ability to commune with the gods she just the more she gets the more she wants it's kind of like a drug in that way yeah that's true yeah her desire for revenge and in turning to and in turn committing an act of genocide pushed her uh, like yeah i feel like there's no question that she's a villain no but i mean she literally i mean she murdered a whole group of people innocent people that's a little hard to like deal with in a character that we're supposed to connect with and feel something for. For me. Yes. Okay. <laughs> for me too. What were you what are you trying to say about me? <laughs> Nothing. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> we interrupt these very deep and dark cuts to bring you show us your fix which character do you think deserves their own storyline let us know by finding us on twitter or instagram at jk magic pod mine my fic that i'd like to see isn't about a particular person it's more like i guess world building i loved how chapter 23 began with an excerpt from a historical document about the chulu Koric. why are you laughing because <laughs> when i read that i was like kelly's gonna love this but i feel confused <laughs> <laughs> i love that shit i love getting like excerpts from in a in a fiction book like in a book of fiction and you're getting an excerpt from another fictional thing i just love it and i'm i'm like totally a sucker for when authors cut away from like a main plot to give you some legends or folk tales I just eat that shit up like tale of the three brothers in deathly hallows. Love it. I just think it's a really effective way to explode the boundaries of a fictional world and give it more depth and texture. I agree. I have, I don't think I want anything yet. I'm really interested to learn about these other places that we haven't been to before, but if there is a second book, I assume we might go to some of them because I'm guessing the Empress has left Nikon. Yeah, they're going to... I mean, the, Rin's going to go hunt her down and kill her. Yeah, Avi. If she doesn't, then I will be upset. <laughs> this is her one act of murder that I'm on board with. <laughs> okay, back to the deep cuts. Because just as one does not simply walk into Mordor, one does not simply read fantasy without talking about representations of race, class, and gender. And in this case, pedagogy. This is our segment about power and bodies and how they relate. Gender. Starting off with gender. We do see a patriarchal society, what I would describe as a patriarchal society, for the most part, despite the fact that Nikon is ruled by an empress and Synagard is also run by a woman. Typically, there's only one woman per year or very few women per year at Synagard. Right? Am I? Did I read that right? The name? No, the... Oh. One woman per year? <laughs> yeah, that is also what I got from it as well. That made me think of Black Cliff mm-hmm. from Saba Tahir's novels. Yeah. And in the year that we start with Ren, we get three women in her year, Venka and um, Niang. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, I really appreciated that they didn't, even though this seems to be more patriarchal and 
um, obviously more men are getting into the academy than women. They didn't seem to be treated differently, um, with the exception, obviously, of Rin, but I think that's more due to her class. One thing I put under this um, gender segment is that Rin chooses sterilization and obviously, like, anatomy and gender expression don't always go together, don't necessarily have to. But I think it fits here because this is this does set Rin apart from her classmates and an option is to just sterilize yourself and be in agony for a few weeks and then you don't have a uterus anymore so you don't have a period so then you don't have to worry about it when you go to class. I was 100% jealous when I read this part (laughs) (laughs) because I was like, why can't I do that? Is this a real thing that exists? I should look into this. I don't think it is. Um, I... I really like that she had no regrets about it. No regrets? <laughs> did I write? Re- no, I did not. No, I just think it's funny. <laughs> I was like, I could have wrote it. I was very tired. <laughs> um, I think one of the hard parts for me is that when we got a little further into the novel, Ren choosing um, serialization felt a little bit of a heavy handed way to move the plot in the direction of she would be the last of her people, um, which I didn't feel and I didn't feel that way until the very end because initially I was glad that she made a choice and was able to make it for herself and I think I'm allowed to feel both things at once totally both happy for her and annoyed but in the about in the middle of the story someone brings up the fact that her and Alton could continue on their race Mm -hmm. and I was like oh are they they're making this so that's not possible and that was like a little bit of like I was a little frustrated about like it just felt heavy handed to me. But I think it was one of the, it was like narrative expediency. You know what I mean? Like I get why, I get why the author did it. Oh, I get it too. I was just like, oh yeah, I for, I had forgotten she did that me thing. Me too. Me and too. And now you're bringing it back up as a way to make sure that there are no more of them. Like she's going to be the last one. And to make sure that we're not, the the reader's not expecting like a love story or a, you know, now we have to repopulate. Right our people sort of narrative for Rin because I mean motherly figure she is not no I mean she is a little she's really good with little kids that's true her her pseudo brother Kaseji yes and then when everyone's fleeing the town she like picks up a small child and like hands it off to someone and she seems to like know how to do those things without actually being a mother which is I appreciated that good rebuttal I recant. <laughs> I recant. She does. The, she's also super violent, and I think has some traits that we would say are more masculine. And I think often we don't get those two things together. So I kind of appreciate that about Rin. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we talked about it a little bit with Auntie Fang in the beginning, because um, we only see her in those first few chapters. But she is absolutely brutal Mm -hmm. um i understand her ferocity in that it sounds like she was forced into an arranged marriage but i don't know how i feel about her deciding to drug and subdue her husband which i said before on the one hand do what you gotta do on the other hand i don't know (laughs) but she's like in charge of all these like opium smugglers she's like a drug kingpin yeah she is queen pin yes She's a drug lord. Yes, she is. She's a drug goddess. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I kind of like seeing that. And I guess when you look at how maybe Rin was raised by her aunt, you kind of get that connection of like, maybe this is why 
a little bit where we see some of those violent traits coming out in Rin. Like it's kind of all she's ever known. With gender in this, yeah. And with that makes me think that like, that brings up for me with gender in this novel, we get this, I got this kind of like cognitive dissonance between that sort of really patriarchal gender role, arranged marriage, Rin, there's nothing for you except this old guy. Right. And deal with it versus the pretty equal treatment that we see in the Synagard Academy and then when she's in the CK like gender doesn't really seem to be that much of a concern people we get all sorts of different depictions of femininity and masculinity and there's no one's really pigeonholed depending on their gender expression right and like her friend who turns out to be her friend Kate yes he is kind of like he doesn't want to fight people he he like tapped out of his fight in the tournament at the end, which I think is something we would often see depicted as a, a, a woman doing mm-hmm. instead. And then Neza is described as beautiful instead of handsome. Yes. So we do Good get point. like these blurred lines a little bit where gender is involved, which I appreciated. And it wasn't like a thing. Right. It wasn't heavy handed. I didn't think it was just kind of like, no, this is just how it works. Which is how people work. They are an amalgamation of lots of different character traits that aren't always shouldn't be associated with masculine and feminine in all the time yep Rin has no qualms about murdering people i know at first she's like a little put off by it but, <laughs> but it, just like slightly and as you know i love a character who is like yeah i'm just gonna murder these people like they're doing bad things let's get rid of them i appreciated that about Rin. <laughs> She, what she does, she does a hundred million percent. Yes. And she's good at it. I would like to learn how to do that. It makes me want to get back into martial arts, honestly. I don't think I could do that, but I'm like, I've just told you I got like a knife and I'm like, I want to learn how to use this just in case. (laughs) Just in case. (laughs) Let's move on to class. The Keiju, which is the exam, the entrance exam for all the different, um, universities system it seems like is a way to keep the lower classes hopeful and obedient and the entire they admit like students and teachers at synagogue admit that it's a ruse of fairness to preserve the social order and to keep those already in power at the top of the social hierarchy and Rin even calls the keju a drug that quote keeps lower classes sedated end quote on page 86 which makes sense when you think about the difference in like the lifestyles of Kite and Ren. Kite had the ability to study every day, which Ren's teacher talks about. Like the upper class kids, ha- they are getting lessons, they're learning martial arts, they're spending all their time, whereas Ren is trying to do it in between like working and taking care of her like adoptive brother. And- in two years. Yeah, and way less time. She must be hella smart. She even resorted to self-harm. Yes, which I was like, wait, what? Yeah, that was surprising. That was kind of our first taste of how, you know, all out Rin goes. Yeah. Like burning herself with the wax of the candle. Right. To keep herself awake. But it's hard because you also want her to get out of the situation where she's going to be forced into marrying some old dude she doesn't want to be with anyways. So it's really an example of her tenacity. Right. And she will do whatever it takes. Once she decides to do a thing, she will go all the way. Yeah. 
Rin's experience at Kitay's house during the summer festival break illuminates the vast wealth inequity. And we see her moving between these two different parts of the city with Zhang and with her tutor at the when she first arrives and then with Zhang later. She's kind of in the quote-unquote seedy, underbelly, lower-class part of the city. And then she describes being picked up in this enormous carriage and then going down these streets that are, like, totally antiseptic and there's, like, not even a blade of grass out of place. And then she shows up at Kate's house and there's, like, a bunch of tiny fluffy dogs and they get <laughs> to eat whatever they want and Kate can just, like, order new shirts if he gets them stained. Like, tailored, bespoke, tailored shirts. Yeah. There is a huge class distinction going on there. Enormous. I really did enjoy that Rin was like, while she was with Kate, she was like, you know, while I'm here, I'm going to practice some self-care. I'm not going to worry about school. I'm just going to relax. And I was like, <laughs> you do it. <laughs> yeah, that seemed a little bit out of character, honestly. It did. But also at the same time, I was like, she deserves that break for a little bit. Totally. Um, there's also a difference in the treatment of the students from different classes, especially Ren, because because she seems like she's the only one who is from a lower class. She's a war orphan, and we later learn she's spearly. Um, but I think this is really exemplified in the treatment between Ren and Neza, in that he, she gets kicked out of her class with Jun. In June, June is it June? Don't know. Okay, but she gets kicked out of the class, and Neza is just like. I don't know. Did he get like detention or something? Yeah, I think he got to suspended for a little while or something. So we really see how even the teachers are like playing on this class distinction. And it, I was, I was also hate that guy. Another part of Rin's experience really highlights the connection between race and class in this particular novel, because Rin is consistently described as having dark skin, being from the South, having dark skin, having a like a different accent. People make fun of her for her accent. And then Venka even says that she's, quote, here to fill up the quota, like literally using overt, that's on page 69, overtly racist and classist um, language that you'd hear now, for example, about like, that's an affirmative action hire, right. quote unquote, like, fuck that shit. And, uh, and some of it is associated... But- it's you know everything's intersectional so with class because Ren spends a lot of time outside as where the people from um, up north are indoors and it's like seen as very beautiful to be as pale as possible so we see how like because of the things that Ren has to do to survive also play into those like stereotypes I just thought it was interesting that this very 21st century sentiment Mm -hmm. showed up in the novel yeah. And, and it made perfect sense in the context of the scene where it was placed. It, it definitely did. Yeah. We get so many conflicting nar- narratives about the Spearleys. The reader gains knowledge along with Rin. So we start in her place of basic ignorance in just hearing legends or folklore, whatever has been passed down to her. Um, and then we gain more and more information as, as time goes on. So Spearleys, correct me if I'm wrong, clearly ethically different so in cultural sense yep because they have their own language religion and traditions yes different from the nakara but i'd also argue that the novel positions them as differently racialized because they Mm -hmm. have darker skin tall you know like specifically darker skin Mm -hmm. but they're also described as taller and different eyes so physiologically like phenotypes are different Mm -hmm. and i think that 
it's one of the reasons because um wrens aren't eyes aren't red at first that i think someone brings up the point like are you actually spirally and then her eyes do turn red eventually but her and alton i think obviously look similar enough that people don't have a problem believing that it's possible Mm -hmm. that she is and also the reason that I would say that they're racialized differently is because, I mean, race is a social construct and they are treated differently because oh, of the color sure. of their skin. Mm-hmm. So there. Yes. Yeah. What happened to Alton? So first of all, there's an entire genocide of the Spearleys that we hear about. Right. And then what happened to Alton and what the, what people did to him. I wasn't clear to me. I think it was the Federation who took him and experimented on him. Or was it the Nakara? I, that wasn't clear to me. I thought it was the Nakara, but you thought it was the Federation. So now I'm not sure. I really did think it was the Federation, but maybe I'm wrong. Either way, if it was experimented on whoever he was, right. whoever experimented on Neither him. Neither government is doing like good things. No, so not at all. That we would believe that it's either one says something about what's going on there. Exactly. These are means that could very well like be used by either by either government. Right. Um, So he was experimented on early childhood through adolescence. So since he was like four, they Mm -hmm. said, and they were drugging him all the time and cut it like all cutting him and all this stuff, like experimenting on him to try and figure out how he could access the gods. And then taken by the Nakara to Synagard and quote unquote trained enormous scare quotes, because that's essentially they just made him into a weapon and they continued facilitating his opium addiction. They didn't do anything to get him like away from to un- to help him battle his addictive tendencies and he was exploited and drugged there too so fuck i know i feel bad for him and i guess at the end he he like sacrifices himself and i think what he did was it, it's like what's best for him in the end because now he won't have to be entombed in the mountain and he doesn't have to live with that anymore and i think it's what he wanted um, but like, oh my God, I can't even imagine. Which is why he just need, why he was, you know, would smoke opium so much. Right. Exactly. And, and I think in future books, we might see Rin start, like we see it a little bit at the end, but I think we'll see her start to use the drugs more and more often. Mm-hmm. And go down a parallel path. But I think that their paths are diverged, right? Mm-hmm. The main point is that Rin had a choice in her anger and Alton didn't. Right. Right. And I'm wondering if we'll learn more about Ren's family in the future, not her adoptive family, but we like we also don't know how Ren survived the massacre of nope. her people either. We do not. I thought it was important to note that Ren is surprised when she finally sees her enemies from Mugen up close and they don't look drastically different from her. And she makes this point on page 327 to say that it's she wishes they would have looked monstrous or something right. like that. And it's because it's much easier to kill and hate when the other doesn't look like the self. Yeah. As an educator, I was paying a lot of attention to the pedagogy in the, in this book and just nerding out over it. <laughs> I was taking all sorts of note about, notes about this and we'll start with uh, bad pedagogy. So June at Synagard is an asshole very snape-like in his kind of targeted vendetta against rin because of her identities right and we see him with alton in that same way once they're both commanders of their own divisions he doesn't want to interact with alton or take his 
his advice or comments or whatever. Mm-hmm. Versus we have like Neza, who's more of a Malfoy figure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Slightly. Oh no, it's all making sense. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly. So many of the classes at Synagard were dedicated to teaching the subject and not the student. So they were just like, oh, here, have all this information rather than tailoring it so that the students get the learning experience that they need. Um, So there's a lot of drilling and memorizing and parroting knowledge and arriving at this, the correct answer. All of them except for Jiang's lore lessons. As unorthodox as Jiang's methods were, like carrying this pig up a mountain. (laughs) It did make her stronger. I would have been pissed. I mean, I would have been pissed when they killed it. Now it's my pet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've been like, no, this is my pet now. But Jung did tailor every single thing that they did to Rin. And part of that was because it was individualized instruction, like a one-to-one teacher-to-student ratio. It's pretty opportune. Like, that doesn't happen very often. Um, but I thought it was really great that Jung mainly asked questions and made Rin do all of the work. And that process, how like that iterative process is what eventually led her worldview to be totally like shattered and blown open and then reconstituted. And that's an example of like how transformative teaching can be. I just think that's so cool. They did a good job with that. And all the teachers seemed a little bit different. Even um, Urja, um, who taught strategy, even though he did want them to arrive at the right answer, he would let them like talk through to arrive at that answer which i think is a better way of teaching than just like saying here here are the answers you got it memorize them Um, i love this line by zhang on page 185 um he says don't be silly i'm not a god i'm a mortal who has woken up and there's power in awareness i just thought that was applicable in so many different areas senegard has students thriving on competition one, if the academy can only accommodate a certain number of students, they should have more testing to weed out extra candidates instead of having them train for a year and then kicking them out. It's so brutal. It's so mean. And then they can't get a job or get into any of the other, I guess there are other academies because they just spent a year somewhere else. And two, we see how the sense of competition keeps the students from forming relationships, causes stress and anxiety. And I think many of those students could use the skills of learning to work together. I mean, we see it later where Neza and um, Ren pair up and they are like really good at fighting together, but they could have known that for four years and instead they're spending all this time hating each other and being very competitive because each teacher can only take a certain amount of students. And I was like, oh, I hate this. I don't like competition. It's not a very good way to learn. It just seems too stressful. Yeah. And kind of along those same lines, Rin craves praise from her masters. So it's all about beating out other students to be the best, right? And she craves this praise so much that the exposition calls achievement a high for her on page 95. And that just hit me so hard. Like, I have been there and it just makes you feel empty. Because when you turn inward and you're like, it makes when you interrogate your value systems, you're like, wait, what? Why have I been doing what? (laughs) <laughs> just checking off the boxes that other people set in front of you. Yeah. The achievement trap is real. And I encourage, like, I interrogating it for me was like, I mean, it sucked. Right. And it's, but it's like also a constant process because it's how much you're, specifically academia, right, mm-hmm. trains you to 
just want to keep being productive and want to keep churning out stuff that you don't really even know what its value is anymore. Which I'm I'm guessing is especially di- difficult when you have spent so much time in academia. Like it kind of gives you that sense of like this is the way things are. And then like what else do you do? Like it's all you've been taught to do, you know? I can't imagine. I do. I know profoundly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not jealous of you at all. <laughs> Finally, it's time for Shipwrecked, a segment about asexuality, sexuality, sex, romance, and relationships. And sometimes we take some liberties and do some shipping of our own. There are no ships in this novel, which I found incredibly refreshing. Surprised myself there. The novel focuses much more on relationships between friends, school rivals, teachers and students, and subordinates and commanders. Right. And I, at one point, thought the novel was setting it up, us up to have a love triangle between yes. Rin, Alton, and Neza. And now Alton's dead, so we don't have to worry about him. <laughs> and Neza's been captured, but I feel like if there's a book too, he'll come back. I don't think he's dead. No, he's the son of a dra- the dragon warlord, so right. they definitely took him prisoner. Yeah, also, I mean... But also, he might have just died in the gas. I, I, Kwong is ruthless. I wouldn't put it past her. <sighs> All right. <laughs> Yeah, I was okay with no 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 ships for the book. It was fine with me. No sex, no ships. Mm-mm. I think I think Rin had some feelings toward Alton, but I'm not exactly sure what those feelings were supposed to be cuz she like seemed to vacillate back and forth between like brotherly love, like and he's like a teacher and he she like likes him. So I wasn't really sure what her feelings are, like but I'm comrade in arms. <laughs> I'm not sure she knows what her feelings are. Agreed. Which is fine. One thing that the novel really gets into and digs deep on is this examining what happens when masters or teachers fall off their pedestal, which kind of happens in tandem with students and subordinates when they start questioning and making decisions for themselves. So we see this um, dynamic between Rin and Alton and Zhang and who is really frightened of their rage and their thirst for vengeance. But at the same time, it's not something that he can really understand. And I do think that their emotions are absolutely justified. Um, But he doesn't want them to weaponize the God's power. And so we see Rin and Alton making their own decisions and choosing to go one way while Jiang would have her do another. We also see this um, between Rin and Alton and as readers, we learn throughout the exposition a lot more in the last third of the novel, I would say, that Alton is a lot more broken and vulnerable than he was positioned as at the beginning when we're at Synagogue and he's this amazing fighter and no one, everyone's afraid to talk to him because he's like so hot and dreamy. (laughs) But it turns out like Alton shares his mind with the Phoenix all the time. He has a deep well of hatred. He has been experimented on and abused and he's addicted to opium because he needs to escape because he can't handle it and the pressure of leadership wears on him when he becomes the commander of the ck and finally yeah rin learns about this constant torment and when they meet in the spirit world after they've both been given heroin when they're at the lab i just thought that was a profound scene where she sees him really for who he is right and and it cuts the distance down he, he's off the pedestal. She can like actually see him as a human being. Yeah. And I'm guessing that's something that 
a lot of us do with our teachers or people we look up to and forget kind of that they're people with emotions and feelings and background stories and like they probably don't deserve to be in like this or we're not we shouldn't feel like they're like above us in some way what do you think about Neza coming to Kirtland and then all of a sudden he and Ren are besties I thought I would hate him forever so did I (laughs) but I kind of enjoyed their friendship I thought they both sincerely apologized to each other for the way that they treated each other when they started at the academy and I think it's hard to like remember sometimes that they're kids and kids say and do really mean things because it's what they're taught from parent parental figures also it's what that toxic like I don't know mix of competition right. and like scarcity mindset exactly. in school was teaching them to do mm-hmm. and so then I was like sad when he died even though I don't think he's dead I think he'll come back and I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen to him. What about you? I was a little bit skeptical and then thought it was very sweet. Yeah. I was so mad. But it, yeah, it just didn't get fleshed out. I wish it would have, I wish we would have had longer for that relationship to develop in, in its like second iteration. Yeah. Like if maybe if we spent a little less time in um, Ren's first year at the Academy, we could have had Neza's like and her relationship fleshed out a little bit more while they're all at Curtilane and like if there was a ship that was going to happen it was going to be this one and it's the ship I want to happen (laughs) (laughs) you love enemies to lovers it's my favorite thing (sighs) no questions asked I don't think Kwong's going to deliver that for you I'll let you know all right god (laughs) the last thing I want to make mention here is actually about siblings and I just, I love the concept of anchor twins, which uh, not to be confused with anchor baby. That's not what we're talking about. That's a racist slur and that's awful. Um, Changan and uh, Kara complement one another. He's very ethereal and she's very earthly and grounded. And I just thought it was a nice invitation to seek out balance. Yeah, it was I liked it too. Especially because when Rin and um, Changan go to the like pantheon she can tell that he's like he's like a more full person like he's bigger like more fleshed out and she realizes that Kara is really the one who's like anchoring him to the real world and i really like that now we're going to talk about writing style narration characterization plot structure and basically whatever else comes to mind in the segment called kill your darlings those fight scenes though they were some of the most exhilarating fight scenes I've ever met or I've ever read. And it was especially, especially at the, in, in the Academy part of the book where we see Rin fighting in the pits at Syndergaard. Agreed. I really liked the fight scenes. They were fantastic. This novel overall, I just, just really impressive. It was so ambitious. It's dense, but I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in a good way because there's just so much going on. There's, philosophical theological ethical and moral questions there's debates about war and tactics and power dynamics talk we see the drug the toll that drugs take on communities and individuals and they're juxtaposed with their liberatory potential we see the price people pay for power and i could go on and on and we're not allowed as readers to have simple or easily defined feelings about any of that right Kwong is very masterful in that way and 
I think maybe there was a little bit too much going on, but props to Kwong for going all out and being ambitious with this book. There were a ton of jump cuts in this book. That's true. Um, And the chapters were really long and the book spanned probably four years, I think. Um, I think I would have liked shorter chapters and less jump cuts. I think it just made everything feel like, like too close together for me sometimes and sometimes I didn't realize we had had such a big jump in time um I don't know I think I think structurally some of it could have been done a little differently and it would have it would have like helped the pacing a little bit for me it wasn't like a slow read but I wasn't like turning the pages like staying up super late trying to finish it well, Except I was, you did. but like, <laughs> you know, I wasn't like staying up all night regularly reading it because mm-hmm. I think because the jump cuts were there, it was just like a perfect pace to stop in the middle of a chapter. I think I would have just rathered a new chapter. And also the novel is, I mean, it's not like your coffee table read. It's super heavy. Right. The content I don't know if the content necessarily lends itself to fast reading when you're like getting your mind blown by like reading these five page long descriptions of what it's like to trip on these hallucinogenic mushrooms and go to the Pantheon and have your like spirit world laid out in front of you and like the Goyliness massacre scenes. That was like, can I get through this? I thought about like just skimming because I was like, this is. Like, I feel sick reading this, and I don't want to read that. Yeah, it produced, like, a visceral reaction for sure. Yeah. So so it's also not a book that's to be just, like, consumed. It's right. not a beach read. No. <laughs> but I think I just would have liked, like, smaller chapters to, like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think something about that is just, like, helpful for the reader. Yeah, for the pacing. Yeah. recommend if you like i've never read another book like this me either so i don't have anything to compare it to shamanism yeah and martial arts i feel like people who you know like i've met those people who are super into martial arts they probably love this book because it's a really great depiction and you can really see it even though it's not like the main focal point of this book i think it could be great for a person who is interested in that also if you want a book that's gonna challenge you in yes. a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. Real talk, Jesse. What did this book make you think about or change your perspective about? I only wrote one word and it was revenge. <laughs> um, I think sometimes for myself personally, I think of revenge is like, that's fine. That's a good thing. But I, I think that sometimes we like lose perspective of how far people can go in the pursuit of revenge Um, And we see this a lot with Ren and Alton and to a certain extent, Shangan, where they're, they're going to go kill the queen. Ren is going to do whatever necessary to make sure the Federation pay, which meant killing innocent people. Via a volcano. Yes. Makes sense. Fire. It does. Phoenix. I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't either. Anyway. I thought like fire was going to like rain down from the sky or something. Right. But... I think sometimes revenge can like harden you in a certain way. That's not exactly good for you. Any thoughts? I would say this, this book really made me think a lot about choice and agency. And especially with this 
difference between Rin and Alton and how, um, I think it's Jangan at the end says that Alton didn't No, I think it's Rin in her exposition, um, is like trying to figure out the difference between her relationship with the Phoenix and her power and Alton's relationship with the Phoenix God and, and that power. And she realizes that Alton didn't really have a choice in his anger. It was, it just had, he had to feel that way. It was the natural reaction to what had, he had been through in his life versus Rin at every step of the way made choices to come closer and closer to her trajectory. And I did like, and I thought you would appreciate, I was reading it and I thought you would appreciate this, um, how it completely, the novel completely disavows fate or destiny and the human obsession with it. I did love that. <laughs> and the, and the, the Phoenix, I think it's the Phoenix God is making these conclusions, drawing these conclusions and telling Rin that no humans make their choices and they call upon the gods and then the gods answer. And so Rin's final reflection in the last few pages of the novel is that the gods have as much power as you give them. Right. Which honestly is very true. And the same can be said for a lot of different things. Like our institutions, our, mon our monetary systems. Lots of things. Thanks for listening to JK It's Magic. We'll be back in two weeks for a discussion of Wicked King by Holly Black. And watch out for the occasional mini-sode about a range of fantasy-adjacent topics. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at JKMagicPod. Post or tweet about the show using the hashtag CriticallyReading. Do you have an idea for a book that we should add to our TBR? Email us at jkmagicpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your suggestions. If you know a friend who would enjoy the podcast, please spread the word. You can subscribe to JK It's Magic on the podcast app of your choice, including the Fi. We are on the Spotify's. And please, 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 if you have a few minutes, take some time to rate and review the show. We'd really appreciate it. JK It's Magic is recorded on land traditionally belonging to Cheyenne, Ute, and Arapaho native peoples. Until next time, stay magical. Okay, back to the deep and dark cuts. Because just as one does not simply walk into Mordor, one does not simply read fantasy without with what? <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Outtakes. <sighs>